What I want to do today is give you some things to think about that flow out of just the experience I've just had in my trip to Rwanda. Some of you are aware of the fact that I've been going to Rwanda since 2010, so I've made eight different trips to Rwanda so far, and the best that I've could put in the math together, I've, I've been in country for just a little over 100 days so far over that eight-year period. First year, second year I went in 2011, I was there for a little over a month, and the rest of them have been about 17-day trips. And um, I want to try to give you four things to think about that flow out of that experience. You're not going to be able to grab onto all of those, so maybe just pick one at the end to really kind of think through and, and begin to, to kind of pray through. They're all things that struck me out of my experience there. But as we get into this, let me just share just a little bit about Rwanda with you. Uh, we're going to bring up a map here of Africa. And um, so Rwanda is this little spot right there. So this is the DRC, um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Geographically, I've heard that it's about the same size as Western Europe, the DRC is. And there's been a lot of militant groups that have been working in the eastern part of the country because there's a lot of mines there for copper and tin and cobalt and that kind of stuff. Just to the south of Rwanda is, is um, Burundi. Burundi's been having some turmoil lately um, related to some transitional transitions in their government or more specifically a lack of transition in their government. A president who's been in power for over 30 years wanted to stay a little longer, had the constitution changed. And with that now there's about about a quarter of a million refugees from Burundi that are currently in Rwanda. Um, of course, you have Tanzania that is also off to the east. And then this country right here is Uganda. This is where Taylor went and, uh, and Jerry, uh, Josh Ayatollah went. And they had just had a major election, again, to, to um, keep a person who's been in power for a long time, to keep him in power going forward. Actually, Rwanda's doing just the same thing. They had a constitution, allowed their president to serve two seven-year terms. They've just voted in a new constitution, which has a seven-year transition period, and then, it has an, then they're going to go to five-year terms, um, and you can serve two consecutive terms for 10 years, but he's going to get a chance to restart his clock. So he's been the president already for 14 years, was the interim president before then, and now is going to have an opportunity to serve for another 17 years before they get done. Um, and so uh, he'll, he could be in power to 2034. It's, it's very interesting. One of the biggest differences between the states and, and Western Europe and, and Africa is that they put security in people where we put it in the rule of law. And, and, and they, they have a very hard time making that transition to believing in the, in, in the law and et cetera. So, but here is Rwanda, this tiny little country. Geographically, it's almost the exact same size as Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a little over 10,000 square miles. Rwanda is a little over 10,000 square miles. And so it's very close. Our population in Massachusetts is a little over 6 million. They have a little over 11 million people. So they're much more densely populated than we are. Their population is a lot different than ours in a couple of other ways. 50% of the, of the population in Rwanda is the age of 20 or younger. So you guys would be some of the old people because you're, you know, you might be over 20, and that puts you on the on above the median age in Rwanda. 42% of the population is 14 years of age or younger. 14, 42% is 14 years of age or younger. 
So what you've had is you've got a lot of these young, young folks who have grown up after the genocide. They've gotten married, and they're having kids like rabbits. The vast majority of the pastors that we serve have at least five children. Some of them have more than ten children. And so it, it's very only 4% of the population is over the age of 55. So I was one of the old guys. Whereas Joel went into the church building and they lowered it by three decades, I step in, I raised it up a couple of decades, right? Because they're just so much younger. Um, the, the, the economic level in Rwanda, it's, it, even though the country is rapidly developing, growing at 8 to 10% a year, some years more than that, it's just a different world than here. I mean, one of the ways you can measure the economic status of a country is by the, the gross domestic product per capita, right? That means how much do we produce on an annual basis per person living in the country. Give you an example. Here in the United States, that number in 2013 was a little over $54,000 worth of product that was produced, services that were sold per person in the United States. A little over $54,000 per person, right? You wish all, some of that was going into your pocket, but that's not exactly the way it works, but that's the gross domestic product per person. In Rwanda, as opposed to 54500 somewhere in there, the average gross domestic, domestic product per capita in Rwanda is $670. So that means if you want to put them side by side, the United States produced in terms of goods and services worth something, they produce the same amount in the first three days per person of the year that Rwanda would take for the entire year. So it's just, just a totally different world. The average income per family is somewhere in the range of about $2,000 a year. Some obviously make significantly more. Some make significantly less. One of the pastors I'm going to introduce you to through a photo here a little later in my message that the home that he rents costs him $10 a month. And it's actually one of the better homes because it has glass windows and cement floors where some of them do not. So it's a very different kind of world. Only, only 85% of the population has access to clean water. And what I mean by access, that means it's within walking distance to go to a well where they can fill up a five-gallon pail and bring it back and have access to clean water. Only 85%. In America, that would be 100%. I mean, you can drink out of your garden hose out in your front yard, right? And the water is safe. 15% of the population has no access to water. Electricity only goes into 20% of the homes. Only 20% of the population has access to electricity. Now think about that. That's 9 million people in the country who do not have access to electricity. And you think about the basic things we do. How do you charge a cell phone when you don't have power? And if you can't have even an $8 cell phone that you can buy minutes for in, in $500, increment, 500 franc increments, which is like 60 cents, if you can't do that, how do you communicate with anybody? You know, how, how do you call your husband who's in the city being at training and tell him, you know, our kid is sick? Or it's very, very diff different world. You think about all the different ways that we use electricity. It, it's a totally different world. Educationally, Rwanda right now is having some significant strains. Imagine with 42% of the population is under the age of 14, right? 
you know, and, and, and 50% is under the age of 20. And, and so they do not have a way to educate all the kids together. So education, public education in, the United, in, in Rwanda is not mandatory. And about, only about 60 to 65% of the population actually goes to school. So you imagine, again, 30 to 35% of the kids, and that's, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of children who live in areas with no electricity, limited access to running water, can't read, can't write. How do you, how do you engage the 21st century? It's a very different kind of world, right? It's very, very different. Um, education, free education stops in the 8th grade. If you want to go to the ninth grade, you've got to pay for it. 300 and something dollars a year. We had a pastor that we've done some work with. He came to me on the side through the translator that, that uh, our, our, um, our contact in Rwanda had organized to be at the building with us that day. You saw a picture of him and Jerry's. Biggest Rwandan we've ever seen. He must have weighed about 400 pounds. His name was Jose. <laughs> Very big fella. Great guy. I don't know how you get that big in Rwanda, but he managed to get that big in Rwanda with all the walking they have to do and the limits on food. But anyways, big fellow, good guy. And so Martin takes me aside and he says, my son just got accepted into what they call senior four. So this would be the last three years of high school, fourth, fifth, and sixth years of high school, secondary school beyond the primary school. And he said, passed the national test, got invited. I don't have the money to send them. And, and the original payment was 85,000 Rwandan francs. That's, you know, that's like $110 for him to start, $330 for the year. He had to show up with, this is what you had to go to school with. This is a boarding school, right? You have to show up with, you have to have a uniform, you have to bring your eating utensils, and you have to bring a mattress to sleep on when you show up. Those are, those are the three things you had to have. In, in addition to making the fee pay, we were able to work that out, and he's able to go. We had to kind of keep it quiet on the side, but very different kind of world, right? So out of that, we go to serve. Been doing so since 2011. This was a, a different kind of an experience for us this year because we had more opportunity to get outside of the capital and to engage the pastors in settings where they live all the time. And, and there's some things that really emerged for me, things that I'm processing, and I'm hoping one of you, you'll latch on to at least one of these in your journey as, as you think about this today. And I'm only going to use one passage of Scripture. I'll use it a little later in, in my message. But I want to start first with, with this thought. We, we experienced more spiritual warfare this year than we had in past years. There's always a little bit of difficulty, that kind of stuff. And, and I'm not talking about the fact that last year we had running hot showers and this year we were back to heating up buckets of water and pouring them over our head one bottle at a time. That's the minor stuff. I mean, first of all, some of our pastors really experienced it. We had one pastor who had a brother who lived in Kenya who passed away during our training and he had to leave and go to Kenya. This is the guy who pastors the church where the tent is at and, uh, in, in the Herman area of uh, Kimisagara there in Kigali. We had another pastor whose 18-month-old son died, and he had to leave training in midst. We had another guy whose uh, sister passed away, and so he and another guy left to go back to their, their village, uh, Batama, where we got to go on our second to the last day in Rwanda. Call back a couple of days later, I guess when he got home, they eventually brought the coffin to put his sister in, and in the midst of that, they discovered that she was moving, so they didn't think it was such a good idea to put her in the coffin, 
And so we don't really know whether she was really dead, and God brought her back to life through our prayers. It's not a prayer that I offered. I was praying for comfort for the, the pastor and his, and, and his extended family and for this woman's husband and, and her family. But who knows, when you start praying like that in Rwanda, you get about four words out, and then they all start praying too out loud. So there's like, you know, 60 people praying, and then somehow or another they know when you're going to end because when you get to the last sentence, they just shut down and stop talking, and then you say amen. I don't know how that works, but it just works that way in Rwanda. So I don't know what they were praying because they're praying in Kenya, Rwanda, and so maybe they were praying for God to bring her back to life. But So we had a lot of experience. Of course, we had our own events with that. You know, we had asked you to pray that God would give us safety and, and would keep us well while we're in Rwanda. I mean, it's hard when you're really sick to be able to serve. And we didn't know that God's protection was going to take the form that it did. Most of us were well, but some of you followed the blog enough to know that Peggy Scudiere on Tuesday of the second week broke her ankle, actually broke her leg just above her ankle, broke both bones, um, a, a compound fracture that punctured through the side of her leg. So it was an open fracture, as they call it. Um, and so it was significant. We had been out in the northwest corner of, um, of um, Rwanda uh, for Monday and Tuesday. John and I and Peggy and Christina had gone up there. Peggy and, and Christina had met with some women. Well, John and I got to visit with a pastor. We spent the evening in Gassini. And, um, and when we returned on Tuesday afternoon, um, we were entering in. This is the, the main building in, in um, Kimironko, in the Zarephath area. This is the main building. This is the best building that they have in their, in their network. And you can see the entranceway. It's just, it's just hard-packed clay, steeper in some places than others. There's no walkway. You, those ruts there are caused by the rain because it rains so hard it just washes stuff away. It was a very dry afternoon. You can see some of the loose gravel. And despite the fact that John had a hold of Peggy, that I just warned everybody to watch their step, etc., Peggy slipped and she broke both bones just above her ankle. And so it's not what you want to hear when you turn around and you say, are you okay? And she says, I think I broke my leg, you know, or I broke my leg. She didn't say it with any doubt in her voice. And um, so you can imagine all the kind of panic kind of starts in, and et cetera. We finally decided the best way to get her to the hospital is really just pick her up, put her in the back of the, of the Jeep that we have, and, 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 and she's carted off to the hospital. This is the hospital here. It, it actually looks um, fairly um, modern. It was built in 19, dedicated in 1998. I read the sign outside. Uh, and um, all the signs are in English because they're adopting English as their national language now in addition to Kenny Rwandan. And uh, I guess right after the genocide, some king with a lot of money gave them all the money. So they built, named the hospital after him, King Faisal Hospital. It's, you know, looks can be a little deceiving. Um, first of all, all the walkways are actually outdoor hallways. So when they carted her from the recovery room to her room, she was being pushed down a hallway that didn't have an outside wall. It just opened and looked into the courtyard down below. Not a whole lot of furniture to sit on. <laughs> so we were struggling for places to sit as we waited. They didn't have a wheelchair that actually had a leg thing that held her foot up. John was just holding it up for her at the beginning. And then when she got put on the bed, they couldn't find any pillows to prop her foot up. So we were using our book bags and stuff to keep her foot elevated. But God's protection took the form of 
two surgeons who had actually been trained and done their internships and had worked and practiced medicine in Europe before returning to their native Rwandans, Rwanda. And they actually did the surgery on that Tuesday evening. Um, and um, they installed four screws and a plate which had five other screws on it. I've got the photos, but I didn't feel at liberty to show those up here because I didn't ask Peggy. You know, you get the picture of all the screws and all that kind of stuff. But, and she saw her doctor this week and um, saw the orthopedic and said that it looks like they did a good job. And she's be all said they had to put two screws in on an angle here to hold the bone, one on the other side, and then the plates on the outside, and then there's one that goes across to hold the two bones in relationship to each other until everything heals up. It was quite a process. But, you know, there's some things you really learned through all of that, you know. And, you know, one, we, we you know, we, when we fly over, we often you know, are talking to people, standing in line, trying to immigrate or whatever with, with people. There, there is with nurses without borders, doctors without borders, teachers without borders. There's all kinds of different organizations that do work all around the world. And, and while we were there, we, we really experienced kind of church without borders. Now, we've developed a relationship with these guys, but, but really, you know, I, I, I think John would articulate the same thing, and Peggy, we, we felt like we were getting the same level of care like we would have from our church here in Sterling. The pastors, you know, we, we, you know we, when we gathered around Peggy to pray before she went into surgery, again, there's like, like 15 people in the, in the emergency room. Now, they'd already asked us to limit it to two, right? But the time came for her to kind of say, say well, okay, we're going to pray. And all of a sudden, just more and more guys are coming through the door, you know. And, we got to start, and I start out in English, and before you know it, I mean, I'm sure they could have heard us on the fourth floor. The guys were praying so loud, you know. I don't know what the people on both sides of her were thinking through the, through the very um, sound-deafening fabric curtains that they had, you know. And we're praying for her and that kind of stuff. And then, and then you know, the, when the surgery's over, like at midnight, you know, there's still pastors there you know, who are caring for us. And then, you know, in the midst of all of that, it, it, not only do we experience kind of the family of God without it, but, but I got to tell you, just, just to see the way some of our team responded. And, it, you know, Jerry uh, D'Agostino, as he told you earlier, he, he, he had some struggles. He had arranged to, to go on this project. Somehow or another, work was first supportive, and then they said they really didn't want him to take the time off, and he said, all the struggles. And so while he's there, he's getting emails back and forth about the fact that he doesn't have his job if he doesn't show up tomorrow. It's kind of hard to do, and that, all these kinds of things. And yet in the midst of all of that, Jerry's saying, I, I, I'm not going to let it distract me from learning what I came to learn, the way it's supposed to shape me. And so he's really kind of rising above. And then in the midst of this whole journey, not a single time did John or Peggy complain. Not, not one negative word. In fact, when I showed up at the ER after we got her in the car, she's being run over and et cetera, we take a different car after we kind of get some things organized and make sure Shane and them had a way to get home and all that kind of stuff. And we get there. And when I walk into the ER, she's sitting in a, she's sitting in a wheelchair and John's holding her leg up. The thing she, she looks at me, she says, Pastor, I'm sorry for messing up our trip. You know, that, that was her attitude, you know. And, and then from there on out, they she simply said, I don't want you guys to miss out on anything you were supposed to do. So don't stay here and take care of me. Go do what you're supposed to do. And, and all of that, just this incredible attitude. And, and that was indicative in the pastors as well. They, they, they were amazed. They, they, they said, you know what, when she broke her ankle, we figured the project was over. You guys were going to get her ready to go home, and you were all going to go home. And the fact that you stayed and did the rest of it, it was just... And, 
And in the midst of that, you know, here's a, the, the pastor of Scripture that started coming back to me is one that I had taught to the pastors in week one, and it's from 1 John 4, 4. And he, and he says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. He's talking about false teachers who want to take you away from what God really offers us in Christ because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And, and, the, and the, the thing that keep struck me was that we, we, we so often are looking for why, ways to escape our circumstances. We want God to deliver us from our circumstances. In fact, we had some interesting questions about Rwandan pastors who had been to Israel and been baptized a second time in the Jordan River, and were they now somehow or another special pastors because they, you know, all that kind of stuff, and they had brought back this really expensive oil to anoint people with, and if you got anointed with it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and all of that is about people trying to find a way to have, to, to be able to escape their circumstances, somehow to get the special blessing where they don't have to deal with what everybody else is dealing with, and and yet, in the midst of it, there's a way for us to really experience victory in the midst of our circumstances. Because the one who's within us is greater than the one who's in the world. And, and, and I wondered, and I reflect on, how, how is it that we, as the people of God, actually experience victory in the midst of our circumstances, rather than somehow or another just as we escape or avoid certain circumstances and to me, that's just an incredible message for us to experience here at home and ways in which in our everyday lives we can really experience victory despite our circumstances. And the list could kind of continue just to go on and on about that. But let me, let me point out a couple other things to you. And some of this relates to just that point. You know, we, we gave the guy... We were teaching First John, and then we were trying to do a section on leadership that Jerry was talking about earlier. And then the second week, we taught the book of James, and then we were trying to work on how to lead thematic Bible studies so that guys could learn how to teach their pastors about, teach, teach their people about prayer or marriage or, you know, whatever, all the way through the Scriptures, not just out of one. And so we're working through this journey, and, and we got to the section on leadership. And so we challenged the guys, we kind of introduction to it, and said, all right, you know, it was late in the day on Wednesday. It was hot. We were tired. They were tired. So, okay, in groups of three, what we want you to do tonight is you have to make a decision. We want you to think of yourself as a church planter. And so you're making a decision on where you're going to have your church meet for worship. And you've got two options. You can either have a bad building in a great location, or you can have a good building, and a good building would have lights. It would have a tile floor. It would have glass on the windows. And it would have some plastic chairs to go along with just the wooden benches. You know, could have a good building, but it'd be in a bad area, a very remote area, not a place where a lot of people are. And we want you to make a decision, and we want you to have two reasons why you made that decision. So we come back the next morning. We're really interested to see what they're going to hear. And I got to tell you, I wasn't really prepared for some of the answers that I got, both on a good and a bad First, guys, uh, I'll take the bad building in a good location. You can cast enough vision, talk about what God's doing, develop the congregation, should be enough resources to improve the building, all that kind of stuff, and then we're in a place where we can impact a lot of people. Good, good reasons. Another, several other groups said we would take the bad build, good building in a bad area because the bad area needs to be served. In other words, they're looking at it as like a mission field. We can go in and develop the area and care for people and start some programs that are going to help people, help literacy, all that kind of stuff. Great reasons. 
several of the groups stood up and, and, and just with a great sense of pride is we would just focus on being godly pastors. You know, and, and another group said we would just, we would just claim the promises of God. And, 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 I, and, I, and I just looked at them after a while and I just said, well, where are you going to meet? You know, you, you, you're, you're talking to somebody on the street on Friday afternoon and say, hey, we're having church services on Sunday. You should come visit us. Where are you going to tell them where to go? You know, and, and they just kind of looked at me with this baffled look, you know, and, 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 and we didn't have all the answers to that. You never do, and et cetera. But, but the, the dynamic that just stood out to me was that the cha- it's a global challenge to take our faith and translate it to our everyday lives. You know, it's great to think about being a godly pastor, standing on the promises of God, all those kinds of wonderful things. But somewhere in the midst of that, you still got to do Monday through Saturday, right? You got you to figure out how you're going to manage your money and make decisions and what commitments you're going to make and what priorities you're going to have and how you're going to deal with this relationship situation, da, 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 all of that. And, and that journey of translating our faith into everyday life is, is a dynamic that goes on around the world, and so much of our spiritual vitality is tied in right at that point. These guys, their spiritual impact as pastors was tied to their ability to, the, to know why they were choosing the good building in the bad spot or the bad building in the good spot, and, and, and yet they struggled to make that, and, and, and it's an interesting. And so I, I continue to think about our challenge as a church. I mean, when we, we have our little slogan, when faith meets life, when we take truth and we translate it to our practical, everyday decisions, that's when hope really happens. And just understanding how to do that dynamic and whether or not we're really doing it that well. I, I look around sometimes and I, I see people who know the truth. They know what's right in the eyes of God and they cannot translate it into the practice of their relationships and their vocations and their families and their finances and and and. and or they, they can do it to a certain point, and then they decide, well, I'm just going to go. And, and, it's, and, and this is where faith really becomes real. And, and I was once again impressed by all of the challenges that go with that. Some of you were did my third point. It, 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 so first one is, is just think about, are you really experiencing victory because of God's presence within you in the midst of your circumstances? Are you really translating your faith into real life worldly living rather than just kind of keeping it cocooned off into something you do for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. Third one, and I know our time's running short. Many of you are aware of the fact that we were taking these solar blankets w- with us. These, they were, they were uh, I think we have a photo, right? Can we pull that up, Jen? So we took over these, uh, John had, through his work, had discovered that, that there were these uh, Solar blankets, these fold up. They don't become a whole lot bigger than, than the size of a notebook. You can put them in a backpack. So we had this notion, and John did all the legwork with this, uh, where you know we took the solar blankets. He, put, he had LED lights made, which long cords that they could run off of batteries and put up in a church building and that kind of stuff. Charging cables that came off. They were all able to just be able to be plugged in like a cigarette lighter stuff. So it was all plug and play. John did all this work. We got over there. He's sitting. And, you know, we, we go out and finally get some stuff that we needed there. We couldn't take with us because it was just way too heavy. He's, he's, um, he's connecting everything up, soldering stuff, taping it where they can't mess it up. You know, it's, he's got some stuff locked down that they really can't mess it up and that kind of stuff. And, and then we get out. The first Monday that, um, that 
Peggy and Christina are in country, and we go to visit ATN. And here's the next photo. This is, is ATN, and if, if you can't tell, ATN's on the left and John's on the right, okay, in case you couldn't figure that out. And we're in his little village of uh, Jamambue, and all that stuff in the background you see are tea plants, like chai tea. You know, it's all tea plants. That's what they grow. And this is ATN's um, village where he serves with his wife and his, and his five children, and he's wearing his Hope Tapple t-shirts. We finally got rid of the last majority of those from our building project 10 years ago. We just took them and gave them away again. So I think this is their second set, actually, but I think we're just about out of them now. And um, the problem is they need so many smalls and mediums that it's just hard for us to come up with enough. But, uh, and, but I want to I show you something. Let's show this next photo. This is ATN's church. On a sun, this, is, this is a sunny day. And Christina and Peggy are teaching the, the pastor's wives. They've come from a long way and a few other church leaders. And, you know, they're hearing things like, okay, what is your day like? And the, and the ladies are telling them, well, I get up in the morning and I look for something to eat for my kids and for me. And if I, if I can't find anything, I try to go find somebody else. I mean, that's how they start their day. When was the last time you got up in the morning and wondered, am I going to have anything to eat today? It doesn't happen to us very often. But, but then this is their church building. You notice that there are some openings for windows on the side. They don't have the money for glass windows. The, the government won't want to put up wooden shutters, so they have no way to secure the building but literally just a brick over them. Now, just think for a minute. What kind of a difference is having two really bright LED lights going to make in this place on a Sunday morning when they have worship? They can plug those lights into that battery that's been charged by the solar panel, turn them up, and it's going it's to be brighter than any light that they have. In, in their community, we, you know, we, we can't even read in the house that we're in without additional lighting because the, it's just so poorly lit. Just think of the impact. And, and, and it struck me as I, I thought about this afterwards, is that the way that God uses the gifts and abilities of his people to make a difference in the kingdom. You know, John has been growing as a teacher. He taught part of 1 John with me, did some other things. But, but God just took all of his technological and engineering kind of stuff and his creativity for literally months leading up to this project and then jury-rigging stuff as we could find certain parts and couldn't find parts over there. And, and we're buying 20 batteries under the table because they didn't want to have to pay taxes on them. And there's all this wild stuff that's going on. And John's sitting there soldering stuff. And he uses his ability to make a huge difference just for the moments of experience. And, and, I, and, I, and the thought that struck me was, how many gifts are there that are deposited in the people of God that just aren't being used for a kingdom difference? You know, whether it's an artistic ability, whether it's an ability just to formulate communications and get the word out, whether it's for marketing stuff, whether it's facility stuff, whether it's, you know... Th- there's all kinds of abilities that God has invested in this people, and there's so much of it that can contribute back to the kingdom. All of it can contribute, and yet often that's just not being tapped into. And here's a guy who's been growing as a teacher and did a marvelous job teaching, and the pastors really see him as, his te- as their teacher now, but he took this ability, this lifelong journey, and, and he created you know, this opportunity, and it's going to make a huge impact in the life. The second church we got out to, we get there, and the first, they, they literally like walk out the building. The, 
The solar panel's laying out in front of the building on a table. They're charging the battery, and they, they hand the battery to John and say, how do we make our piano work this way with this? You know, because they got a keyboard, and, and, and all the pastors are told us we can't get the young people to come, right? That's 50% of the nation, right? We can't get the young people to come if we don't have a, an instrument like this. We can't do it with the drums. We have, and, and like, how do you hook this up? And John spends the next hour jury-rigging the thing, so the next thing you know, the, the keyboard's working. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and so the, the, how, how is it that God is using what he's given you? Not just your ability to pick up a passage and read it and teach it, but what, what, how is it God's taking the stuff that he's put, things that matter to you, things that you're passionate about, stuff you're good at, how is God using that to make a kingdom difference? Because God can use it all. All right, one last point. And some of you read about this in my, my column this week. And, you know, we had a opportunity on the last Sunday, this last weekend that we were there on Saturday, we went out to Nicodemus Church, and this next photo is a picture of Nicodemus. I had promised Nicodemus a number of years ago that I would go out and visit him in his home, and he's since moved locations and moved from the deep south up to the southeast, and where this location is is probably within 10 miles of the Burundi border. Nicodemus is a genocide survivor in this sense that he was a by that time, he was a Tutsi by credentials in those days. That everybody had to be labeled. Um, he and a, a couple of friends of his were in the middle of were out on Lake Kivu fishing, trying to catch some fish for their family to eat that night. When, and they were in a small rowboat when the genocide began, and the news actually got to them. I mean, they could tell what was going on, and so he and these they're ten years old. He and these couple of other kids they row across the lake. Now, this isn't just like rowing across Lake Quinsigamond, you know, where it's just a couple hundred yards. They, they row across the lake, and they stay on their own in a refugee camp in the DRC for the next four months until the genocide is over. When Nicodemus comes back into Rwanda a- after that period of time, his parents are dead and all of his siblings, except for one sister, have been murdered, massacred in the, in the genocide. He's taken in by Polycarp, a guy that, that I had the privilege of teaching for a number of years. He died this past October. He, was in his, he, he died in his late 70s, so he was in his 50s. He was also a Tutsi. He was a Rwandan police officer. He was beaten and left for dead. They thought he was dead three different times, but he managed to survive. He took in Nicodemus and raised him as his own child among his own kids. And Nicodemus has, has become one of the pastors. He's been in all of our training. So he's 32 years of age now, married to a woman by the name of Therese. And they have five children with a set of twins, and she's pregnant with their sixth. So, and they look at us and say, why do you only have two? You know, and it's <laughs> very interesting. This is Nicodemus' home, which he rents. Um, he, he pays $10 a month to rent this home. As I said, it's got glass windows. It's got a cement floor. Let, let me show you just a couple photos from inside. This is their pantry. So they got the wood for the fire, which they would do out back. You see the yellow buckets on the left. That's what they go and get water in. So, so Nicodemus would make a journey to the local well at least once a day and fill a couple of those. He might have to go more often than that. You see the purple bucket, that is the dishwasher. So that's where they wash their dishes. 
The red one probably is something that they would not only wash their food in, but they also wash their clothes in. So that's the washing machine. And the hedges you saw out front, that is those, that's the clothesline. That's where they dry their clothes. They lay them out over the hedges. And you see they got a couple of pots and pans. What's conspicuously absent is any food, which they would buy essentially meal by meal. And you will see in the main pot on top of the green one, there's some white stuff in there. We gave them a 50-pound bag of rice to each of the pastors. And so they had had some rice the night before. Let me show you the family bedroom. This is the family bedroom. Um, so that's about a four-foot by four-foot foam pad with some kind of a mattress, with some kind of a covering on it. And they obviously sleep underneath the mosquito netting. Now, there was another apparatus like this without minus the mattress in, a, in another room. Um, don't know if the twins slept there or if that's where they slept or whatever, but this is essentially what they sleep on, on every day. Um, when we let, Nicodemus was gracious enough to take us by there after showing us a piece of property that the church had built. They were going to kind of set up a second site about three or four miles outside of the village and and they had already started forming some mud block and that kind of stuff. And he took us back by there. And then we went back and I sat there and we had, we had lunch with them. And then afterwards we had a service where everybody was invited. And, 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 and the, the joy, the enthusiasm on his face and in his voice and his actions and interactions with the people. And that, those of his wife, Therese, you, you know, they're, they're just the way that she they always dance when they sing. You know, they can't think of expressing happiness or a joy of excitement without dancing. So she's dancing and they're singing and, and the, 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 the look on her face just exudes a sense of joy. And, and, I, and I'm trying to put the two pictures together, right? Here they are. They, they, they just have this profound sense of just emanating joy and, and happiness and, 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 and just being exhilarated to be alive and be all the kind of great stuff that things that God is doing. And, and I'm contrasting that against where they're going to go lay down their head to sleep tonight and whether there's going to be anything on the plate besides the rice that we gave them. And, 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 and immediately my first reaction was, you know what? They're, they're, they're only joyful because they don't know what they don't know. That was my first reaction. It was like, if they only knew. You know, if they, they just came to the States or went to Western Europe for a short period of time and thought what it's like to actually have running water and electricity and a comfortable bed and air conditioning, you know, and other kinds of things. You know, and, and, and so the, the, the only reason why they're really content is because they don't know what they don't know. And, and that's just wrong. You know, I, I, I've communicated over and over again through my ministry that, that our joy is found in the Lord, and their joy was not founded, was not based in what they didn't know. Their joy was based in who they did know. And that's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and I, I was just taken aback to say, is that where I find my joy? Simply and only knowing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a great question for all of us to ask ourselves, right? Would, is our joy 
kind of like in God with all the other stuff with it? Or is our joy really just in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Because that's the kind of joy that's really worth having. Let's pray for just a minute. Grateful for you letting me debrief just a little bit my experience. God, we come to you today as a God who wants to give us joy. You know, Jesus said before he left the planet, he says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that our joy might be full. God, use these questions, whichever one it is or all of them, to really cause us to kind of look in places maybe we don't look at very often and see you shape us and grow us so we get to a place where our joy truly is full. For I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.